exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. We'll be picking up in verse 27. These last two weeks, we've seen how Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman. In Jesus' day, the Samaritans and the Jews despised each other. The Jews saw the Samaritans as these unclean pagans, and so it was common not to associate or even have a meal with the Samaritan. But despite these cultural barriers, Jesus sat down at a well in the middle of Samaria on a hot day and asked a random woman for a drink. She's speechless, but as the conversation continues, Jesus reveals that he is not only a prophet, but he is the Christ, and also he uses the title, I Am. This title was a title used only for God in the Old Testament, and here Jesus uses it for himself, and so we pick up in the conversation at that point, and we'll see not only the disciples react to this strange scene, but we'll also see how this random Samaritan woman with a shoddy past is going to react as well. So let's pray and then we'll dive into the text. Dear loving Father of all, you spoke to this woman through your son. We beg that you speak to us now. Don't let us be like the disciples who were offended by your radical love. Don't let us be blind like they were. Help us to be heavenly minded. Guide us through the power of your spirit. In the name of your son, amen. How did you react when grace became amazing to you. Every Christian has a testimony. Every Christian has a story of when God came and changed their heart, when God opened their blind eyes and made Jesus irresistible in their sight. Your story may look very different from the person's story who's sitting next to you. Some have exciting stories of dark sin and struggles, while others may have the simple story of being converted after being raised in a church family. But every conversion is a miracle. Every Christian story is the story of God miraculously taking out the heart of stone and putting within a person a heart of flesh. So how did you react when grace became amazing to you? What did it feel like? Who did you tell? What did you do next? At first, most of us told anyone and everyone we could about Jesus. At first, you couldn't get enough sermons, you couldn't get enough teaching, you couldn't get enough Bible to satisfy you. It was all you wanted. At first, I'm sure many of us thought, if this is the beginning, it can only get better from here. If this is what being a Christian is, I can't wait to see what God is going to do in the next couple years. But what happens to most of us? First, we told everyone about Jesus, but then, over time... You got a little quieter about your faith and a little quieter and a little quieter. Then life gets busier and busier and you start to neglect spiritual things and slowly that fire within you begins to fade. So my question is this. Is that you this morning? Did you start off strong and now you're just trying to keep your head above the water? Have you gotten stuck in a rut and you're just doing all the things you're supposed to and you're just going through the motions but your heart is not in it? Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I can't relate to any of this at all. I've never had that experience. I never had that moment. And maybe the reason you can't relate is because God has never changed your heart. Maybe you're sitting here and you've never been, what the Bible calls, been born again. To those who have forgotten their first love or your passion to serve, the Lord has dwindled. John 4 is for you. For those who have never been truly believed in Jesus, John 4 is for you. 
In this text, Jesus just revealed his identity to this Samaritan woman. And we're going to see this woman get saved. We're going to see her eyes open and her heart changed. And let me tell you, there are few things more energizing than a new Christian. God is so glorious to them and the gospel is so good to them. It's like a fire in their souls that ignites other people's fires. And so my prayer this morning is that we could reignite that flame within our own hearts. My hope is that as we study John 4, the fire in the heart of this Samaritan woman would pass on to all of us. Because in John 4, verses 27 through 42, we find four realities about God's grace. Four realities about God's grace. We'll find that forgetting God's grace leads to worldliness in verse 27. Then we'll find that God's grace radically transformed sinners in verses 28 through 30. And then we'll see that we are living in the age of God's grace in verses 31 through 38. And finally, we'll see that God's grace is for the whole world in verses 39 through 42. But let's start with that first reality about God's grace. Forgetting God's grace leads to worldliness. Look with me to verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Stop right there. The disciples finally returned from getting the food and they have missed the entire conversation up to this point. But when they arrive at the scene, they marvel. And if you and I had lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, we would have marveled too. John tells us that they marveled not because she was a Samaritan, but because she was a woman. Now, I'm sure the disciples would have marveled if they had heard Jesus ask her, Hey, can I have a drink from your water pot? They would have marveled at that for sure. But the fact that she is a woman is scandal enough for these disciples. Why? Well, at this time, women were viewed as inferior, as unrighteous compared to men. Listen to a few common sayings from the rabbis of this age. Let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not even with his own wife. So not just random women. Don't even talk to your wife when you're in public. Here's another one. Um, only fools teach their daughters the laws of Torah. I mean, that, that was the mindset within many of the rabbis. And then finally, there was another saying that said, talking with a woman is one of the six things which makes a disciple impure. So this is the mindset of this age. And Jesus' disciples were looking at him and thinking, are you serious? What are you doing? You're going to become impure. You're going to ruin not only your reputation, but ours. We're following you. And this is not the point of John 4. But I have to say that this kind of thinking is totally opposite of the way the Bible views women. Think all the way back to Genesis in the garden. God creates man and gives him a task and he's helpless. He can't accomplish that, can't, that task. And he goes through all the animals and, no, and finally he makes woman as a helper. And some people take that word helper and they abuse it and say, oh, women are just the help. They're just that word helper occurs over 50 times in the Bible. Twice it is referred to women. The other 48 times, God is called our helper. It's not a demeaning word. It's a role of importance. And then when God creates mankind, it says that in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Not just man in the image of God, female as well. That statement's revolutionary back in the day. Women have value. They have meaning. They're made in the image of God. And you even go to the, the commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments. The Fifth Commandment is honor your father, right? No. Honor your father and your mother. 
You mean I'm supposed to respect my mother as if she's equal with my father? Yes, you are. These are normal to us. They're everyday things to us. But this is revolutionary 4,000 years ago. And now we turn to the New Testament and you see how Jesus treats women all throughout the Gospels, everywhere, every time he encounters them. He addresses them as people made in the image of God, people who have dignity and value. And even Paul picks up on this and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and that he gave himself up for her. Nobody dies for their wife. Nobody serves and loves their wife in this way, but Christ does. And Christian husbands are supposed to do this. Why? Because women are divine image bearers who are to be loved, served, and protected. And almost every culture, everywhere, has distorted God's design for men and women. God created men and women differently with different bodies and different strengths. And even within the home, God gave men and women different yet complementary roles. Your father, your mother. But God also created man and woman in his image, meaning they are equal in dignity, value, and worth. You see, ever since the fall, we've seen cultures that want to destroy God's design for the genders, either by eliminating all distinctions between men and women, or by belittling women and denying their worth as divine image bearers. And here we have a culture that doesn't see women as valuable. They have abandoned God's word and what he has to say about the value of women. And the disciples are products of their culture. They don't see it. It's like telling a fish that they're wet. It's, it's what they exist in. They have no idea that their views are so counter-biblical because it's what they were raised in. It's, they're a product of their environment. That doesn't make it right because they had the scriptures. And they see Jesus speaking with this woman and they are scandalized. But they really shouldn't be. Not if they had remembered who they were and not if they remembered who Jesus was. These were poor fishermen and farmers. They were the lowest class in Israel. They had no biblical training. There was nothing righteous about them when Jesus called them. They were nobodies. And if their hearts were laid bare and their sins were revealed, then it would be so much, so much more obvious how much they did not deserve to be followers of Jesus. Remember the words of John the Baptist. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And here the disciples have forgotten the grace that they have been shown. And so they marvel when Jesus speaks with this woman. Let me define grace real quick. We sing about grace and we talk about God's grace. And there's always at least one grace in every Bible believing church. Grace is God's undeserved kindness. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. While grace is getting what you don't deserve. So I've used this analogy before, but if I went up to Brant and I punched him in the face, I wouldn't because I don't think I could take Brant in a fight. So this is not a threat, just an analogy. But if I did hit Brant in the face, Brant not punching me back would be the mercy of Brant because I'm not getting what I deserve. But if I went up to Brant and punched him in the face and he gave me $5, that would be the grace of Brant because I'm getting what I don't deserve. So God's grace is his undeserved kindness. And these disciples have forgotten the grace that has been shown to them. And it shows. It's a dangerous thing to forget the grace of God. It's dangerous to forget what God has done to save you and to redeem you and to forgive you. Because the less you focus on God's grace, the more like the world we become. The disciples 
would have thought they were being righteous. But they ended up looking a lot more like their culture than they looked like Jesus. And there's no one who has ever had a better understanding of God's grace than Jesus. And here Jesus has set his heart on this woman and he is willing to disregard every cultural taboo, every ignorant encounter biblical rule so that God's grace can have her and so that heaven can have her. Amen. Amen. But here the disciples' thoughts are not heavenly at all. They don't say anything, but they silently judge. And listen, church, we need to be careful to avoid the example of the disciples here. We should be careful not to forget how God has shown his grace to us. Because I believe that if we're faithful to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel, then many people will start coming to church who are not like us, and it's our responsibility to love them like Jesus has loved this woman. It's our job to remember that the grace of God has been shown to us and then to rejoice when God shows it to others. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So not only does forgetting God's grace lead to worldliness, but God's grace also radically transforms sinners. Look with me to verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Before the disciples could say anything, before anything happens in verse 28, the woman leaves her water jar and runs into town to tell everyone about this man. This woman came to this well only concerned with earthly things. All she cared about was finding water to quench her thirst, finding a lover to help her find, fill the loneliness in her heart, and finding some religion to ease the guilt in her heart. But now she is so overwhelmed with excitement and overwhelmed that the Messiah has revealed himself to her that she leaves behind all her cares. She leaves behind her water jar, which is the whole reason she came to the well. The only reason she was getting water at the hottest part of the day was to avoid the townspeople. And now where she's running? She's running to the town. She's running to the people. And interestingly, the word translated water jar here is the same word used for the jars in chapter 2 which were used for ceremonial washing. You didn't just have water for drinking but also for ceremonial and religious cleansing. I don't think it's a coincidence that when the woman encounters the Messiah, the great I am, the God who must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, she abandons the water used for ceremonial washings to tell everyone about Jesus. She has no concern for her thirst, her reputation, or even her religious ceremonies, and she goes around the town telling everyone, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The same woman who was so resistant, so stubborn, so difficult with Jesus. She changed the subject every time she got. And even when she realizes he's a prophet, she does not want to listen to him. How is it possible that this stubborn woman is now doing these things? Because God's grace radically transforms sinners. She has become a new creature. She has passed from death to life. She was blind, but now she sees. And notice how simple her message is. Simply come and see. 
Jesus is the master evangelist. He knows how to perfectly answer every question, deal with every obstacle, but you don't have to be Jesus to share your faith. You need to be a person who has been so radically transformed by God's grace that you're just bursting to tell others about him. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to have a Bible degree. If someone asks you a question, you don't know the answer. You know what you tell them? I don't know, but come and see. You can say, hey, I don't know, but come to my church. Come meet with my pastor. Come meet with the other Christians there and we'll talk. If they don't want to do that, tell them, read the gospel of John. Give them one of our, our church cards that we have that have the gospel in the back. Give them one of our prayer cards that have the gospel in the back. Just tell them to come and see. Being a witness does not take superhuman knowledge. It takes a sinner who has been radically changed by God's grace. Amen? Amen. So not only does forgetting God's grace lead to worldliness, not only does God's grace radically transform sinners, but the third reality about God's grace is this. We are living in the age of God's grace. Look with me to verses 31 to 33. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples say to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Here the attention shifts from the Samaritans to Jesus' disciples. And it's a funny scene to me. The story started with Jesus asking for a drink of water, which he never gets. He would be understandably tired and thirsty and hungry. So his disciples tell him, eat. And Jesus tells them he has food they don't know about. If you've been reading this story, what has Jesus eaten so far? Nothing. So for us reading, it's obvious he's speaking metaphorically, but the disciples totally miss it. John loves these stories where Jesus is speaking about spiritual things and his hearers think he's thinking about the physical. So just like when Jesus offered this woman living water and she thought that Jesus was talking about some kind of physical water. So here Jesus' disciples think he's talking about physical food. And think about it from their perspective. They had just gone into town to get food and they're looking at each other and thinking, hey, we just went on this journey. We just got this food. Who had food the whole time? But Jesus explains what he means in verse 34. Look with me. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When Jesus is using the picture of food, he's actually borrowing from Moses. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus came here to find joy and satisfaction and sustenance in obeying the will of the Lord and in accomplishing his work. But what is the work that the father sent him to do? Jesus came here to suffer and die on a device of Roman torture. He came to suffer in the place of sinners. His hands and feet were pierced. He was nailed to a cross for hours. So much so that that in crucifixion, you didn't die from bleeding out. You were actually stuck on this and you had to pull on the nails with every breath. So most people who died of crucifixion died from lack of oxygen, from asphyxiation. And so Jesus suffered for hours and When he cried out his last, he cried out, it is finished. He said, it is finished because at that point he had taken away the sin of the world. At that point, he had accomplished what God had sent him to do. He had paid the death. He had satisfied the wrath of God. It was at that point, Jesus accomplished the work that God gave him. 
That was his food, accomplishing his work. And while he was hungry and thirsty and tired besides Jacob's well in Samaria, he found satisfaction in doing God's will and in talking with this Samaritan woman to show her how to find eternal life. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He continues in verses 35 through 38. Look with me. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labor, and you have entered into their labor. Stop there. The disciples thought he was speaking of earthly things, so he uses an earthly analogy. You're so concerned with the harvest. It's all you think about. The whole world revolved around the harvest because without it, we all die. But here Jesus is saying, there is a spiritual harvest that's happening before your eyes. And he starts talking about the sower and the reaper, and he's very vague. And then he explains himself a little bit in verse 38. Look back to 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So far, what has Jesus sent the disciples to do? It's possible that they went out preaching, but they definitely were baptizing. We see that in verse 2, chapter 4. So whose labor were they entering into? Well, John the Baptist had just been ministering in this area and preaching and baptizing. So I think he's referring to John the Baptist. John had just been there. And so when Jesus says that the disciples have entered into their labor... Most scholars, and and I think it's just this inevitable conclusion of the text, are talking about all the Old Testament prophets who have laid this foundation, ending with John, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the only reason the disciples were seeing so many people coming to being baptized is because of the foundation laid by all who came before. Jesus and his disciples have arrived at the climax of all of human history. The entire Old Testament was looking forward to the age of God's grace. In the garden, God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. If you eat of the tree, you will be cursed and die. If you don't eat, you will be blessed and lived. It was a covenant based on their obedience. It was a covenant of works. And then when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they deserve death and they are cursed. But what does God do when he finds them? Instead of killing them, he finds an animal And he kills it in their place. And then he gives him the skins of that animal as a covering for their nakedness. And then he promises one day there will come a descendant of Eve who will reverse the curse and defeat the serpent. And then Jesus comes and he lives the perfect life of obedience that Adam failed to live. Jesus never sinned, never rebelled, never disobeyed. And then on the cross, he took our curse and our punishment, and died the death Adam and all his descendants deserved. So now, we're we're not living under a covenant that is based upon our obedience, not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. We are living in the age of God's grace because Jesus earned salvation on our behalf, and now all that's required to be counted righteous is simple faith in Jesus and what he has done. So that means that time is now for the good news of Jesus and the good news of God's grace to be shared anywhere and everyone, to anyone and everyone. Let me be clear. When I say we are living in the age of God's grace, I'm not saying that they were saved by works in the Old Testament and now we're saved by grace. No, 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 no. 
Remember the story of Abraham? Chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham believes God and he's counted as righteous before he's done anything else. Abraham was saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that he could not boast. And he did it by trusting in the promises of God to come. But back then, Abraham only had the promise of grace. And it wasn't until Jesus came that he ushered in the age of God's grace. And now the sower and the reaper can rejoice together because in heaven, there is no jealousy. All the saints are so consumed with the glory of God that they rejoice when anyone is saved. They don't care that they didn't get to live long enough to see it for themselves. Think of Jeremiah who had like two converts in the 40 years of his preaching. Isaiah who had almost nobody repent in their entire... They rejoice in heaven anytime anyone is converted. And that should be our attitude too. Someone who lives in Brant Lake goes to faith. Praise the Lord they're going to a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. If we had 10 services a Sunday and we filled every seat, that would mean half of Brant Lake is still unchurched. Not including Chestertown or Pottersville or Hay. We need to pray for more churches and more evangelists and more pastors. And we need to praise the Lord when he moves and works in other churches around us. Because whether we sow or whether we reap, we can rejoice because we are living in the age of God's grace. And our food is to do the work of him who has sent us. Amen? Amen. But we have one more reality about God's grace, and it's this. God's grace is for the whole world. Look with me to verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This woman's testimony was two sentences. 17 words, and from her simple testimony, many believe in Jesus. So they asked him to stay longer, and after Jesus stayed with them, many more believed. And by the end of it, the woman has faded into the background. One of my favorite quotes is from a man named Nicholas von Zinzenthor. I can't even say his name. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And that's exactly what this woman has done. By the end of the story, the Samaritans can say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Our jobs is not to impress others with our lives or our words. It's simply to bring others to Jesus and pray that the Spirit works within their hearts. But during this amazing series of events, the Samaritans say something remarkable. If you look back to verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We don't know what Jesus said during those two days in Sychar. What a wonderful opportunity to sit under the teaching of Jesus and to ask questions and just sit there in awe. And during that time, Jesus introduces himself as the Savior of the world. It's interesting. It's really common for us to speak of Jesus as the Savior of the world, but it's only used twice in the entire Bible. It's used here, and John uses one more time in 1 John 4. But that's it. And now... I don't think this means that Jesus is the Savior of every individual who has ever lived. Because remember John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Savior of the world? It means that whoever believes, they will be saved. 
The last people in the world you expect to be saved were the Samaritans. But what do we see here? A revival in Samaria. How is that possible? Because God's grace is for the whole world, regardless of skin color or social class, regardless of gender or geography. God's grace is for the whole world. Amen? Amen. God's grace has gone global here. So global, in fact, that even though we are 5,564 miles from Israel, we have the ability to worship God in spirit and in truth in Brant Lake, New York. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he came to save all kinds of people and all kinds of sinners. Even this woman, even these Samaritans, even you and I. See, my prayer this morning is that we could rekindle your love for Jesus. My hope was that the fire in the heart of this Samaritan could help us remember what it was like when you first believed. Because in John 4, we found four realities about God's grace. We found that forgetting God's grace leads to worldliness, that God's grace radically transforms sinners, that we are living in the age of God's grace, and that God's grace is for the whole world. So let me ask you, have you lost sight of God's grace? Have you forgotten what God did to save a wretch like you and I? Are you just going through the motions? Or maybe the Samaritan woman's story is so totally unrelatable because you have never experienced that kind of grace. Is that you? Have you been radically transformed by God's grace? Well, I have two pastoral charges for you. Two ways that we can take these realities that we found in John and apply them to our lives. First pastoral charge. This one's a hard one. Ask yourself, have I been radically transformed by God's grace. Ask yourself, have I been radically transformed by God's grace? I'm going to borrow an analogy from someone else named Paul Washer. I've heard him use this a number of times, so let me borrow this. Let's imagine today I showed up late, so late in fact that the worship service is over, and imagine I run in through the doors and Harvey or Marty are angry with me and they say, Taylor, don't you appreciate the fact we've called you to be our pastor and you completely missed the service? And I say, listen, you have to understand, I have a reason for being so late. Well, what's that reason? Well, I was going to check my mail, which is actually across the street from my house. So I cross the street and I go to get the mail. And as I was crossing back, I dropped one of the letters and I really wasn't paying attention. So I go down to the road and I pick up the letter that I dropped and I wasn't paying attention. So right there in the middle of the highway, I stood and there was a 30-ton logging trunk going 120 miles an hour, about 10 yards in front of me. And it ran me over and that's why I'm late. (laughs) Now, there would only be two logical conclusions. One... I'm a liar. Or two, I'm insane. Now you would say, Taylor, it is absolutely absurd. It is impossible, brother, to have an encounter with something as large as a logging truck and not be changed. And then my question would be to you, what is larger, a logging truck or the true God of the universe? What is larger, the impact of that truck or the grace of God? It is impossible to have an encounter with the living God and not to be changed by it. And at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, have I been radically transformed by God's grace? Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. He said, that which the Samaritan woman here did, all true Christians ought to do likewise. The church needs it. The state of the world demands it. Common sense points out that it is right. 
Everyone who has received the grace of God and tasted that Christ is gracious ought to find words to testify of Christ to others. Where is our faith? If we believe that our souls, that souls around us are perishing and that Christ alone can save them and yet remain silent. Where is our love if we can see others going down to hell and yet say nothing to them about Christ and salvation? We may well doubt our own love to Christ if our hearts are never moved to speak of him. We may well doubt the safety of our own souls if we feel no concern about the souls of others. And if that's you, the solution is not to tell others about Jesus. That comes later. But the solution is for you to receive God's grace. You and I have offended the almighty creator of the universe with our lies. We fail to worship him like we should. We fail to love others as we should. We rebel against his word and his commandments. And the only just punishment is death for our sins. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to be the savior of the world. And now all you and I have to do is repent and trust. Turn from your sin. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from anything and everything that's not Jesus and trust alone in what Christ did on the cross and receive the grace of God. Because though your sins are like scarlet, His grace will make them as white as snow. Ask yourself, have I been radically transformed by God's grace? And if you haven't, receive His grace today. It's the first pastoral charge. Second pastoral charge. Tell others the story of God's grace. Tell others the story of God's grace. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people who will never set foot in this church, but they will listen to you. Don't just invite them to church. Tell them about what Jesus uh, did and who he is and what he did for sinners. And this is not an easy thing to do. That's why we came up with these little cards to help you along in your journey. But remember, you don't have to be a master evangelist. You just need a heart radically transformed by the grace of God. And if you have that, then just start by telling others to come and see Jesus. And this wasn't my pastoral charge, but I'm I'm feeling it right now, is remember the gospel. Don't forget God's grace and what he has done in your life. Telling Jesus is good, but if you don't remember what God has done in your life and done to your heart and saved you from the clutches of hell because he loved you in eternity past, like that love is the fire you need for evangelism. The solution is not for you to pull up your bootstraps and to try really hard and to be a good Christian. The solution is to focus on the gospel and focus on Christ. And if that is your focus, if that is where your heart is, it's easy to tell others the story of Jesus. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.